very much, Alan. That was absolutely fantastic. Our next uh, uh, our next talk is going to be by Dr. Clean and Leonon. Um, and it's a project she worked on uh, with Dr. Steve Davis um, of UCD. And um, we're going to go straight on to it now, and then we'll have time for questions afterwards on Alan's paper and Cleanus. Um, it's The title of the presentation is A Medieval Meeting Place by the Boyne, Excavation of a Possible Ferta at Douth, County Meath. Thanks very much. Thanks. Um, good afternoon, everyone. And thanks, obviously, to the Academy for uh, funding one season of this excavation, but also giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about it today. So the excavation was carried out over two seasons uh, on a large mound that overlooks the River Boyne in Douth County Meath. And this research excavation actually forms part of a wider archaeological research programme that's been carried out on the Devonish lands at Douth in partnership with UCD School of Archaeology, where Dr. Steve Davis is the principal investigator. So um, when I start talking about the Devonish lands of Death, you might be wondering what I'm talking about. It actually refers to the estate uh, associated with Death Hall, which was purchased by Devonish back in 2013. The estate has over 400 acres of land, and it is located in the middle of the core area of the UNESCO World Heritage Site. So you can see this sort of solid lilac colored block, that's the estate, and it represents more than a fifth of the core area of this internationally significant landscape. So quite a large land holding to be in private ownership. Uh, unfortunately, due to time constraints, I'm not gonna be able to give you a complete tour of the estate. I'm gonna be focusing on this excavation. But I like this photo because it gives a, um, a wee bit of a, an overview or a snapshot of all the resources that this estate has in terms of natural heritage, architectural heritage, and archaeological heritage. Uh, over here, we have Douth Hall. I'll point it out again, just this little block here. It's a mid-18th century neoclassical Georgian villa that was built for the Netterville family. To the east of it, this ring here, this is Douth Henge. It's one of the largest upstanding henge monuments on the island of Ireland. To the west of the house, uh, there's a couple of little passage tombs, and we also found a larger passage tomb underneath the house itself uh, during recent excavations over the last few years. In terms of natural heritage, it's in a, a stunning location, and it also forms part of the Boyne and Blackwater Special Area of Conservation, particularly this part of uh, wetlands here. The site I'm going to be talking about is overlooking the Boyne. It's just around 120 metres to the north of it. It's located in one of my favourite parts of uh, the estate. It's really quiet. You can't hear any traffic. All you can hear is the uh, river flowing by. And it's quite a distinctive landmark in the landscape. Um, it measures around 80 metres by 90 metres across. And in height, it ranges from around four meters in height when viewed from the north, but it goes up to around 12 meters when viewed from the south from the river. So it's quite impressive from that side. Uh, looking at it in the LIDAR data, um, it also looks a little bit unusual. You can see there's possible scarping coming up here. It looks like it might have a berm and a ditch around it. And the southern side of it looks kind of flattened. So for all of these reasons, sort of, where it's located, its dimensions that are comparable to some of the more famous prehistoric mounds in the area, and also the shaping of it. 
it's led to a lot of dis discussion about this mound. Some people have argued that it's purely natural mound. Other people have argued, could this be something more? Could it be a prehistoric monument? And uh, back in probably 2011, 2012, this uh, mound caught the eye of Dr. Steve Davis, who decided to begin a program of geophysical survey to try and answer, is this natural, is this artificial, or is it a little bit of both? And this was really the start of a wider landscape-based uh, geophysical survey program at Dauth, uh, coordinated by Dr. Davis. This image shows the coverage we've gotten so far uh, using a magnetic gradiometry. So pretty much the whole estate has been covered, and we've been really helped in this by the a number of different partners, but in particular the Romish Germanische Commission, who have this uh, amazing magnetic radiometry rig that you can pull behind a 4x4 four four and cover huge amounts of land in the day. Zooming into where our mound is, um, this data, it's some of the RGK data, but also other um, collaborators, Chris Carey from Brighton and Christina Markison. But you can see it's in quite a busy landscape surrounded by a number of enclosures. So uh, the decision to excavate in this mound was uh, kind of an objective of Dr. Davis in terms of these big sort of uh, geophysical survey projects. Eventually, you do have to ground through them, as um, I think Marion was saying, or Tracy was saying earlier. So put a shovel in the ground to try and determine what the data is telling us. Uh, so focusing more on the mound in particular, a range of different geophysical survey techniques were carried out prior to excavation. The first was magnetic radiometry undertaken by Dr. Christine Markison from the University of Vienna. Her work showed that we're sort of getting some kind of anomaly coming around the perimeter of the mound. To the south of the mound in this area, we're getting a, a series of possible features that if you start to close your eyes and squint at it in a certain light, possibly looks like some kind of rectangular uh, structure. So after that, we got uh, electrical resist resistivity tomography and GR and ground penetrating radar done by Elizabeth Richley and Eve Daly. This is the result of the ERT. It showed that uh, the mound had uh, a higher higher density sort of mantle and a lower density interior, which got everyone excited because we were thinking, oh, maybe there's something inside this mound. But of what's of particular relevance in the end is this little brown feature here, which looks like a cut feature, a possible ditch going around the mound. The GPR results, visually quite similar to our magnetic radiometry. And again, it shows that we've got this uh, anomaly going around the perimeter of the mound. So in 2015, we undertook our first season of excavation, which was kindly funded by the landowners themselves. We opened up two trenches, one in the southeast quadrant of the mound, and another just immediately south of it to target that possible structure. Here's a, a nice aerial post-sex shot taken by uh, Noel Meehan, I think. Uh, the trench that was in the mound, shown up here, revealed that that anomaly going around the perimeter is actually uh, a rock cut ditch. Um, again, like up in Balton Glass Hill, we've got a nice ditch cut into shale bedrock here. Uh, it's quite narrow, it's a blunted V-shaped profile and quite sterile as well. Um, within the ditch, we only found 
two artifacts. One was a flint flake and another was a piece of Leinsterware that came from the main fill but was found during sieving. And throughout this trench, but in the ditch in particular, we were getting a lot of bioturbation, so lots of animal burrows and roots. So the material, the two pieces we got out, uh, we couldn't really use them to date the ditch because of uh, sort of uh, taphonomic issues. The nicest find we got from this trench was from a deposit that sealed the ditch, and it's this lovely barbed and tanged arrowhead. So uh, getting this mix of prehistoric and medieval uh, material. To the trench to the south here, we sort of had the reverse. We were hoping to find elements of this rectangular structure, but those features uh, proved to be very ephemeral. But we did get quite a lot of uh, artifactual material. We got more than 200 lithics. Those that were diagnostic um, appeared to be late Neolithic, Calcolithic in date. We also got some beaker pottery. We did get one potential feature. It was like a, a thin lens of charcoal that could uh, represent sort of a, like a single use hearth. And the dates from that gave uh, mi oh, sorry, middle Neolithic date quite early at the sort of the start of the middle Neolithic period. So like lots of excavations, uh, while the first season answered some questions, it did show up a lot more. We knew uh, that the mound was a culturally modified mound. We were, had evidence for prehistoric activity in front of the mound and for me medieval activity in the vicinity also. However, we still didn't know the date of the ditch. We didn't know if the mound was completely artificial or a culturally modified natural mound. And we weren't sure if all those lithics we were getting were broadly in situ, or was there something higher up on the mound that was being washed down uh, to the south. So in order to try and answer some of these new questions, uh, we undertook a second season of excavation in 2016, which was kindly funded by the Royal Irish Academy. This time we focused on the western side of the mound, where that uh, perimeter ditch seems to sort of fork off into two. And there was also sort of the hint of an oval enclosure further west. So we put one long trench across those two features and opened a, a smaller trench up on the very summit of the mound. So this is an aerial, aerial shot of that trench to the west of the mound. So we came across our perimeter ditch again. Uh, this time there was more sort of coherency in the uh, chronology of the material we were getting from the ditch, it was all coming out as medieval. We we're also getting these later field drains that are deliberately running into the ditch, uh, using it kind of as a sump, which would make us believe that the ditch was at least partially visible to those people who were digging those uh, 19th century field drains. Um, a couple of meters to the east, we found another ditch that corresponds to that eastern arm of the fork I showed you earlier. It's a wider ditch. Uh, it's got a more gentle, gently sloping eastern edge. In terms of material, it was a lot quieter. We weren't getting much out of it at all. But we did get sort of the find of the site from this ditch, which is this lovely little silver hand pin. This is uh, sort of like shots of a newborn baby. This is a few hours after it came out of the ground. When it came out first, it was like a bright purple color. And we we're all looking at it going, what the hell is this? But thankfully, um, we work quite closely with the conservator in UCD, so she was able to put her mind at rest of what it was. So it's um, a little silver hand pin. It's got 
three sort of little fingers. You can see them projecting out there. Um, uh, Dr. Fiona Gavin is working with us uh, looking at this material. Uh, it looks like it's a fifth century uh, Romano-British pin. Uh, it's an insular type of pin, but the ones that are produced in silver, in particular the ones that have uh, a type of decoration called military style, seem to be influenced by the northwest province of the Roman Empire. So quite a high status object that has been brought into Ireland uh, from Britain. We, <coughs> excuse me, we extended our trench um, further east and we found what looks to be a terrace or a deliberate scarping. So the bedrock has been cut into creating sort of a level platform and we've got all this sediment later building up, sort of rolling down from up above, including this larger stone here. Um, we opened up our trench at the top of the mound, all eager, expecting that we'll be opening up a window into a prehistoric mound, but we were uh, uh, sorely disappointed when we hit bedrock within around six inches. Um, we did find some features, however. So there seems to be uh, probably around four furrows running across, cut by this pit. But again, very sterile fills. The only material we're getting is in the topsoil and it's coming out as medieval. So uh, again, some que questions answered, but a, a lot more sort of uh, questions to be followed. In particular, what was this site? Why were people investing so much time into shaping it, into putting a ditch around it? And I forgot to mention the, the trench up at the top of the mound also suggests that the top of the mound was flattened because in general with shale bedrock, um, what you normally find on top of the bedrock, you'll find a, la uh, a layer of weathered shale and then you'll get your topsoil. That layer of weathered shale was missing from the top of the mound, so it looks like someone has tried to flatten it or level it off. Um, we, uh, we were lucky, working with UCD, that we're getting lots of different uh, visitors and colleagues coming to the site, and one of them, Professor Aidan O'Sullivan, when he looked at the mound, he suggested could it not be a boundary mound or a fert? So that sort of got us starting to think, uh, where does this monument sit within its landscape? So if we go back to that geophysical uh, survey image, you can see the mound is at the centre of a very busy early medieval landscape. To the west, we've got this large bivalent enclosure, uh, probably a, a high status ring fort, and it's got these rectangular fields associated with it. The really strong signal going through it is a modern water pipe, so don't get too excited there. To the north of it, we've got a smaller bivalent enclosure, and to the northeast, another possibly trivalent enclosure. And these two big enclosures are at very sort of um, strategically important points along the river. This one up here has got great views going, uh, looking northwards, and this has a good view of sort of um, the southern part down here. So um, when Professor O'Sullivan started talking, you know, could this be a, a fert or a verta? Um, that got me thinking, what is a verta? I'd never heard of it before. So I did a, a little bit of research, but disclaimer, I'm not saying that I'm any kind of an expert, but there are people who've done extensive uh, investigation. In particular, Elizabeth O'Brien and Adele Brannock. They started looking at this, um, monument type called a fert that there's references to in old Irish literature. You're also getting them in place names like Clonfert and Ardfert. So they suggested that 
Ferta were ancestral burial places that were being used in the early medieval period. So sometimes they were reused prehistoric mounds, so you're getting uh, early med burials inserted to them. Sometimes you're getting what I'd call an appropriation of a natural mound. People look at it and think this is a prehistoric mound and that's why the early medieval people are interacting with it. And at times they created new monuments entirely. And this practice of interacting with these uh, monuments that are considered to be prehistoric burial places and inserting new burials into them, uh, they believe was part of uh, an attempt to continue or even create a territorial claim through the ancestors. In Tirakhan's Collectinea, uh, dating to the 7th century, there's actually uh, a little bit of a description of a fert when uh, the burial of Ethna and Fidelm, two daughters of the king Logra MacNeil, who apparently was the son of Nile of the Lion hostages, they were said to have been buried in a fossum rotundum, a round ditch after the manner of a fert. So that's sort of uh, insinuating that these burial mounds sometimes had ditches going around them. So when you when I read this, I started going, ding, 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 we've got a ditch going around our mound, so uh, a little box tick there as well. Uh, O'Brien and Branagh considered that burials in these ancestral fertile didn't really extend as a practice beyond the 8th century, but they continue to be important as territorial boundary markers. And you often find them in prominent topographic positions, so overlooking or close to natural boundaries like rivers, streams, and ravines. Our mound obviously is overlooking the Boyne. But immediately east of that, there's a, of the mound, there's actually a stream running down and there's a ravine coming down into that stream. So possibly it could be located in uh, along a territorial boundary. There's also the possibility that these uh, boundary mounds could have been used as, in sort of as locations for early medieval assemblies. Again, I'm not an expert on this. I'd direct people to look at some of Paddy Gleason's work. Um, but through sort of the old text, we can see that there was a range of different types of assemblies. You could have the Irops, which uh, would have been the holding of a law court, also a situation for parleys, so negotiating any contentious relationships between, between neighbours and family and so on. Some of the sites could have been used for ordination and inkinging, and the assembly were probably all more familiar with the Enoch, so the periodic or seasonal meeting. Uh, often for a larger territory like a province, so a larger territory than just an individual Thua. So could we have a fert at Dave? Well, certainly its location is uh, ticking a lot of boxes. It's in a very busy early medieval landscape. It's located near sort of uh, topographic boundaries. We're getting high status early medieval material from it. But as with sort of uh, the best stories, there's always a, a twist in the end because of these little nine shards of pottery. <clears throat> Never been a fan of medieval pottery and these shards make me even less so, but um, uh, these have been looked at by uh, Noel Mitchell. As I say, our artifact assemblage was quite scarce from all of the trenches, but these nine shards, uh, the four on the left came from deposits that were cut by the ditch uh, the five on the right either came from the ditch fill or from recuts of the ditch, and they're all later medieval, so dating from the 12th to uh, the 14th century. So then we started to need to start thinking what was happening in later medieval days. So this pottery is really telling us that the excavation of the perimeter ditch around the mound 
took place during Anglo-Norman possession of the lands at Daith. So who were these uh, Anglo-Normans who were wrecking my story that this was a, an early medieval vert? Uh, well, in 1172, the Kingdom of Meath was granted to Hugh de Lacey, who in turn granted Slane, including Daith, to the Fleming family. Uh, we get information about who this who the tenants on this land subsequently were uh, through various different court cases, because uh, that seems to be what everyone's lasting record will be, what you did wrong and who tried to sue you. In 1220, uh, a case was taken against Herbert de Rushbury, who was uh, the tenant at Dave. In 1244, another case was taken against a new tenant, Ralph de Pitchford. And by 1306, we're getting a more significant uh, change of ownership because it's a, a change of possession. The Netterville family are now the owners at Daith. And we know that they're there because we have another court case in 1306. Um, the Netterfields are being accused of cattle rustling. Their defense was that they were only stealing back cows that had been stolen from them and they were uh, acquitted. But I think it's nice, it's sort of showing how an Anglo-Norman family is already well integrated into some native Irish practices. So <laughs> we're a bad influence on everyone, but. Um, so looking at the pottery we were getting, uh, it's a good chance that it was the Netherfields who dug this uh, ditch around the mound. So why were they doing that? Why were they investing this amount of time and energy into digging this ditch? Could it have been a settlement? Um, I really don't think it was a settlement. The, the lack of uh, material that would suggest that, uh, we've no bone from any of the ditch, nothing that would suggest even sort of uh, parties there every now and again. Uh, I don't think it could have been used as an enclosure for animals, particularly the ditch on the southern side of the mound. It's quite narrow, very easy for animals to jump over. In fact, when we were excav excavating over there, like we had it all fenced off and in the morning we'd find little uh, little deer footprints uh, in, in our trench, so they were having no, no trouble bounding all over it. So if we go back to this idea of, um, go back to that handpin, how did that handpin end up in that ditch? Uh, this is an early medieval object that probably would have been in the hands of a native Irish family. It does look like it's been curated for a bit. The, the shank is broken and the broken end is quite rounded. Um, but I don't think that it has been curated for just say, you know, six, seven hundred years, and it's ended up in the hands of an Anglo-Norman family. I think it was on the mound, and during the course of the excavation of the ditch or the sediment, uh, the silting up of it, it has ended up in the ditch. So could the presence of this handpin suggest that there was early med medieval activity on the mound? Could it, after all, possibly have been a fert? And then in the later medieval period, we're getting an Anglo-Norman family putting their mark on it, sort of uh, appropriating uh, a territorial marker that was significant to a local native Irish population. But uh, as seems to be the, the theme through my uh, presentation, it's a lot of questions and you never know, I might get some answers from, from the crowd here as well. But whatever its uh, use and function, I think what can't be denied is that this has been an important uh, topographical marker, a, a place in the landscape through time. We have prehistoric activity, particularly on the platform in front of the mound. We've that middle Neolithic heart, and then we've that late Neolithic and Chalcolithic uh, material. And 
finding the beaker pottery in these sort of little lithics in front of a mound that kind of looks like a prehistoric burial mound, are we getting some kind of repetition of the behaviour that we're getting outside of passage tombs? Where, for example, uh, the passage tomb I'm excavating at the house itself, uh, straight in front of the curb stones, again, we're getting very similar lithic material and beaker pottery coming up. Could it have been that people in the late Neolithic, Calcolithic, were looking at this mound not only as a ter territory or a landscape marker, but possibly as belonging to their ancestors? I think we definitely have early medieval activity either on or very close to the mound, and it's at the heart of quite a high status early medieval landscape with these big uh, multi-valet ring forts and that little hand pin. And then in the later medieval, we're getting this modification and possibly this appropriation of uh, a topographical feature that was important to previous populations. So I'll leave it with lots more questions. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone who's been involved in terms of funding, both uh, the Royal Irish Academy in Devonish and the Brennan family. Obviously, this was done in partnership with the UCD School of Archaeology. We've been helped greatly with all our geophysical survey, our photography. And sort of going back to a point um, Ian made at the start of the day about the importance of these academy grants in training up of students. This is um, just snapshots of the crews over the two years. A lot of them were students in UCD. And we're sort of trained up on these training digs and other digs. and. Eventually, when we uh, started our commercial excavation around the house, uh, a lot of these students graduated to sort of full-blown archaeologists in a paid job. So it, it shows the importance of these of these research excavations and training up our next generation of archaeologists. Okay, thanks.